Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. First up. Uh, I have to apologize a little bit as we actually have not had a podcast the past few weeks. And I know that we are, we always try to release uh, every Tuesday. Uh, things have been especially crazy uh, and I've been traveling a bit more than usual and we just weren't able to get new podcasts recorded for the past couple of weeks. Uh, hopefully things are starting to calm down. Of course, now that I've said that, I'm sure it'll change, but uh, we have some other uh, uh, podcast guests lined up and uh, some recent panel discussions that will probably turn into some podcasts. So uh, hopefully this this little break uh, won't won't happen again for for a while. Uh, but today uh, we are talking to David Kay, who has uh, quite an impressive title. I really like this title. <laughs> he is uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of the Right to Freedom of Opinion and Expression. It's a bit of a mouthful, but uh, the uh, short version of that is that he is basically the UN's free speech guru. Uh, he is also a law professor at UC Irvine. Uh, and lately, he has been publishing a wide variety of really fascinating articles and papers and reports tackling a whole bunch of different big issues concerning the intersection of free speech and technology, uh, which is something that we obviously like to discuss quite a bit here at TechDirt. So today, uh, we're going to focus on his latest report for the UN, which is uh, focused on the question the well, questions raised by artificial intelligence and how that might impact freedom of expression around the globe. Uh, the report, which we'll link to in our show notes, lays out a human rights legal framework for thinking about artificial intelligence. While much of the discussion we've seen to date around ethical discussions concerning AI focus on perhaps other aspects of how AI might negatively impact life, uh, Kay's report focuses on the potential impact on freedom of expression specifically, and also how to design AI such that it doesn't interfere with people expressing their opinions. The report discusses important issues around transparency and discrimination and suggests that any government regulation around AI um, should be sure to take into account the impact that those rules will have on free expression, while also suggesting that companies put in time to carefully craft guidelines that match with uh, human rights and to make explicit how AI and human rights, uh, especially around free speech, intersect. So, uh, David, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Um, My let's, pleasure. Let's start about the basis for putting this particular report together. Were there concerns that you had specifically that, that drove you to focus on the questions around AI? Yeah. So, Mike, thanks for, thanks for inviting me to, to sure. join you. You know, so for the last few years, I've been focusing in my thematic reporting to the Human Rights Council and to the General Assembly on the way in which the private sector is shaping public space and private space for speech. Um, and it, it was just natural that uh, that we would focus on AI. So the last the last few reports that I've done have focused on things like um, infrastructure and the role of of you know companies like ISPs and telecommunications companies and the way they serve as as gatekeepers for for expression and and the way that states uh, put a lot of pressure onto those actors to repress speech with things like internet shutdowns and filtering and and um, uh, and things like that and then this past June I did a report on content moderation that was um, focused primarily on what the companies are doing, mm -hmm. but also a little bit on uh, on what governments are doing to enter that space. And so it just seemed natural that we would try to drill down a little bit onto the role of automation and AI, the, the way the companies use them, the way that 
human rights can kind of frame our thinking about these issues and, and also frame the way governments in particular think about regulating them. And so, I mean, for our listeners who, who maybe don't know, like what, you know, what is the sort of framework of, of human rights as it relates to, to free expression? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question and it's, I mean, I, to, to a certain extent, I feel like it's not asked enough <laughs> because, you know, certainly in the United States, our vocabulary is not human rights. And, right. and, and there's a big disconnect around the world because for much of the rest of the world, so particularly, you know, in Europe, which is thinking really carefully about algorithms and AI and automation, you know, their language is naturally human rights. So... So I think it's a great question, and, and so one of my ulterior motives in, in all of this kind of work is to get people to be thinking about human rights law. Um, but anyway, you, at, you asked about the framework. So human rights law, which, which is actually binding on the United States because the U.S. is a party to the, the central treaty in this space. It's known as the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR. It protects in its Article 19 everyone's right to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas of all kinds. Uh, and it, it does permit for restrictions on expression, particularly as long as they're necessary and proportionate to achieving a, a le legitimate objective. But, but that framework is at the center of, um, you know, kind of European and global thinking about what's happening online. And so what I tried to do in this report is to kind of ask some questions about AI and ask them in the context of, uh, of these human rights norms. And one of the things I would just emphasize is, because I'm sure your listeners would very quickly respond that, well, yeah, of course, those, those are human rights norms, but they've been adopted by states. So it must just be states that are obligated by them. But there's, there's a whole other um, kind of area of thinking about the way in which uh, companies also have responsibilities to protect individual rights. And so a lot of the report is focused on company responsibility and what we, we talk about is the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights and how they apply in this space. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's interesting. And the, and the report itself sort of breaks out the different, the different roles for the different players. And you sort of, you know, in the, in the U.S. context, obviously – you know, I, I think you're right. I mean, most of the discussion doesn't focus on human rights. When you're talking about free expression, you know, obviously everyone sort of, you know, focuses on the First Amendment and, and you know, the case law around that. And, and yeah. some of that includes, like, the First Amendment rights of the, the companies themselves in terms mm -hmm. of, like, making choices or, or um, you know, in, in the in the moderation space, but also applies to some of the AI aspects as well. Um and and so I'm wondering, you know, when you talk about responsibilities of the companies, um, I know that at least some portion of our listeners probably clench up because, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, yeah. you know, people get a little bit nervous when you talk about responsibilities for for companies. So, you know, yeah. can you dig in a little bit there? Yeah, I mean that's so true. I mean I've given talks about some of these issues in rooms where there's you know, NGOs and companies, and, and it's absolutely true that that companies, um, you know, are, are a little bit anxious about the question of responsibility. And and I mm -hmm. also, I mean, I agree with the, the point that you're making that the companies themselves have, um, you know, they have the right to shape the platform in the, in the way that they want to shape it, right? And, and I, and it's important to to highlight that up front. And, and quite a bit of my work really does focus on the way in which governments um, overreach in that space and and impose certain kinds of restrictions on the companies. That is a restriction, essentially. I mean, we could here we'd call it you know their First Amendment rights, but but also their their rights as a matter of human rights to to shape the space that they have. But I, you know, I would say that. That generally speaking, the the big companies, um, it, you know, the big ones operating in the space of information, so social media and search, that that they get it, that they've they've been willing to engage in discussions around 
um, around company responsibility, that they understand that, you know, just like, you know, the mineral extraction industry, you know, 20, 25 years ago uh, was seen as outside of the scope of regulation and there needed to be some rules around them. Um, they understand generally that there's there's a need for some um, or that there's at least an interest among government and civil society to uh, to put some oh, I'm not trying to say constraints to but to put mm-hmm. some normative framework around what they're doing and um, and to to create a sense of responsibility for what they do in terms of restricting either that you know that public space uh, which we often think of as you know, privately held, but but very much public, um, and also to, um, you know, to to kind of constrain the the way in which they deal with user data. So there's a whole lot there that we can drill down into for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting, and I think, um, you know, I, I think it's true. I think you know, one of the the disconnects that I think maybe the public has um, about how, especially, we're mainly talking about you know the big. Uh, giant platforms, the Googles and Facebooks of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of people think that that those companies are sort of, um, I want to say, not ignoring these issues, but like sort of hiding from from these issues. And I and I think that's an inaccurate portrayal. I think that there there is a lot of interest, and I think that there are many people at those companies that um, deeply care about these issues and are sort of trying to think about them and think about, you know, sort of what impact the decisions they make have. They they don't, you know, th- th- those those ideas may come into conflict with other goals of the company and different parts of the company, and there can be sort of battles about them. But I, I do think that they do care and they are interested, and therefore I do think that there is a lot of value in sort of laying out, you know, frameworks for them to, to be considering and thinking about the impact that, that they can have and the choices that they make and, and what that that might lead to. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really, a, a really good point and something that I, that I think about um, quite a bit. And that's that, that there are a lot of people in the companies who want to get it right. You know, as the companies have grown and by the companies, I'm thinking, you know, particularly the, the Silicon Valley companies, mm-hmm. you know, as they've grown into these behemoths, really, they, um, they've also, you know, they've been under a lot of pressure. I mean, we can go back to, you know, Yahoo in China in, you know, like 2007, 2008, mm-hmm. and, you know, being called up by Congressman Tom Lantos to, for human rights hearings. And, um, and I, so they, they've been under this, this pressure to respond to human rights concerns for many years. And there are a lot of people in the companies, I think, who understand that and, and want to get it right. But I think that, and this is where it's a, a little bit of a, a struggle for me in trying to understand what the companies are doing sometimes, they're, um, they're very um, kind of conscientious about those norms, but at the same time, they have this you know, massive uh, pressure to um, you know, expand shareholder value. Mm-hmm. And, and I think those things come in conflict, and I'm not always clear... I mean, this is way beyond the AI question, but I'm not always clear as to, you know, internally, although the report gets to some of this, so we can talk about this, um, whether internally the discussions about human rights are being, um, are being held at a, you know, a high level of, um, within the companies. Right. That, that's not always clear to me. So it's, I think it's a concern, and, and part, of, part of my effort in doing this reporting is to encourage the companies not just to kind of segregate these discussions uh, out in terms of, you know, the lawyers or the content policy people, but, um, but to make this a kind of integrated approach to how the companies are thinking about these, these big problems. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really important point. It's, It's one that we've discussed a little bit before, but I think is, is really important to highlight because, you know, you do have this situation where, you know, it's one thing to have, you know the the policy people or the or the lawyers thinking about this stuff and and sort of you know showing up at certain meetings and sort of discussing these things but it's another thing entirely to have the whole company you know 
in a mindset where they think about these things when they're making engineering decisions, when they're making marketing decisions, when they're making, you know, positioning decisions about how they do any of this stuff, are they considering, I mean, there's a number of different things that they can consider, but is this sort of impact, the human rights impact of what they're doing, one of the things that they're considering in doing these things, or is it something that just sort of like, you know, goes through this third party review process where you build this tool and then, you know, somewhere in the process, you know, probably, you know, months before it gets released, you suddenly bring in like somebody who whose job it is to then analyze the, the, the human rights or privacy or free speech or whatever aspect to it. I think that is, you know, a much less effective idea and one that gets companies into a lot more trouble than than really having it sort of, you know, uh, built into the core of, of their their thinking on things in terms of how they, how, you know, how, how they approach all of these different different aspects. Yeah, I think that's right. So, so this is, um, I mean, it's actually possible to think about this in human rights terms, if I, I can bring it back to yeah, that. Go so, for that. So, um, so in terms of that framework, and in terms of the business and human rights framework, that, that framework kind of recognizes that companies aren't bound in the same way as states are um, to, to public law. I mean, mm-hmm. they're bound by whatever laws are in place in the markets where they're operating, but, but they're not bound by human rights law in the same way. So the, the UN's guiding principles on business and human rights, which were adopted by the Human Rights Council and, and many of the companies um, sort of see as relevant to their work by their participation in the Global uh, Network Initiative, which is a kind of an industry um, industry process to focus on freedom of expression and privacy rights and, and so forth. But one of the things that is a part of the, um, the guiding principles is that companies should do human rights impact estate uh, assessments of their products and, um, and that, that those impact assessments should be kind of central to company decisions that would be made under, um, like within that context. So, th- so there's this idea that the companies as a whole would make a commitment to uh, to observing human rights, and that those commitments would be integrated into all of the operations of the company. And if you if you make that commitment at a high enough level, then you know when you get to either content policy or um, data protection policy or whatever it might be. You're, you're, you're basically, I think, encouraging all of, all of your engineers, your lawyers, your product people to be thinking, okay, how is this new product or how is this um, new market going to have an impact on, um, on the rights of, the, of our users? And, and I think there's, there's not enough of that happening, but, but there is this sense of, of the framework that pushes the companies in that direction. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that makes sense, and it is a sort of interesting world, and it's one that you know we've discussed for years. And that you know, yes, the companies have you know sort of different rules in terms of how how they're set up, but also they're effectively creating their own laws, right? In terms of how people use the platform, the terms of service is you know in some ways. Uh, you know, a, a either, you know, a guiding constitution or, um, you know, some sort of, you know, private set of laws within that platform. Um, and it's, you know, that's a a framework worth thinking about and and kind of like how that then is, is, you know, applies and is used in, in all different ways. And that goes beyond just the freedom of expression questions. Um, but it's, it's an area that, you know, people have brought up before, but I sometimes wonder how seriously companies sort of take that level of, um, responsibility. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, there's, um, uh, there's, there's definitely an open question about, about how seriously they take this, uh, in, and, and I, I mean, I mean, just going back, uh, a beat, there there are a lot of people who think about this and want to get it right, but whether in the actual context of decision making, if they are getting it right, is a totally different question. And and the companies, they absolutely have created a kind of platform law. Yeah. You know, it's the whether it's terms of service or community standards and how those are integrated together, 
they are, you know, they're, they're really creating, uh, I think, what looks a lot like law. And yeah. they're really framing a lot of the public space for, for information right now. And, and that's particularly true outside the United States, where some of these companies, you know, equal the Internet. Um, yep. There's a lot of competition still, I think, in the United States, but outside, that's that's not always true. So, so these these issues around AI and um, and content moderation, whereas I think in the United States we tend to still feel that there's um, there there's other space for for expression and for public discourse. That's just not true everywhere else. And so these issues have real prominence. Um, in, in a lot of places right now. Yeah. Yeah. So. Ma mainly Facebook, I think. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, well, or, or it's associated properties like what? Yeah, exactly. Or... Well, I mean, so Facebook and also I, I would put into a similar category, YouTube, particularly around mm -hmm. the AI sure. issues, you know, they have, they both have such dominance in, you know, in some places in Southeast Asia or South Asia, or, or even, you know, if you look at um, their impact, particularly YouTube's impact in Germany, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, that impact is, is really quite serious. And one of the things that, that I've been seeing, over, I mean, we've all been seeing this over the last few years, is particularly in Europe, is governments are reacting. And yep. they're saying, look, these are these American companies that, um, yeah, they're, they're providing a lot of good in in many ways right they're they're providing access to information they're allowing people to connect and to build you know different kind of communities of affinity and so forth but they're having a huge impact on our public life mm -hmm. and and so i mean we've already seen this in germany where the move from a kind of soft law of um you know of codes of conduct and so forth has moved to the kind of hard law of Nets DG, the, the German law on on content moderation and hate speech. You know, that's I think that's the direction. And I think the companies haven't totally, even though they see it coming, I don't think they've totally um, gotten their their heads around this this big future of of government regulation, which I think will spill over in negative ways in authoritarian areas. Yeah. Um, do you want to, we've written about it a little bit on, on Tector, the, the, that German law that you just referred to. Do you want to just, for people, for listeners who maybe aren't aware of kind of what that entails, um, do you want to sure. just give like a quick summary of it? Yeah. I mean, basically it's a law that, that just came into force uh, January 1st of this year. And it's a law that basically says to the companies, um, you need to enforce certain parts of German criminal law that deal with um, what they call illegal hate speech. So it ranges from issues like the dissemination of Nazi uh, symbols to certain kinds of what they call criminal insults. And it's, you know, the, the, the challenge is that, that Germany is basically saying to the companies, we want you to be the, arbit the arbiters of and the interpreters of this law on your platform. And, you know, it, it, it's, that's really problematic. It's an outsourcing of law in many ways, or it's an outsourcing mm -hmm. of law enforcement. The big problem for the companies uh, from the beginning was that if they don't implement systems to, to deal with and, and implement this, you know, this new law, they could be subject to fines that go up to 50 million euros. Uh, so it, it wasn't just here's the law and you need to implement it. It was here's the law you need to implement it, and if you don't, there's going to be some very serious sanctions on you. So there, it, I think the the outcome isn't totally clear yet, but you know the concern is that the companies, as you would expect, will overregulate this space and take down a lot of legitimate content because they want to err on that side rather on the side than on the side of. Um, of getting it wrong and being subject to penalties. 
Yeah, and then just a couple other elements of it. It's not just the companies that could get fined, but individual employees at the companies yeah. could face, I think, up to five million euros yeah. in, in fines, which obviously gives them incentive outside of the company's incentive to, you know, be very worried about missing something and therefore potentially, you know, over overly censor speech. And some of the examples that we've seen under the the German law that, you know, in the in the last few months include like you know, satirical posts by politicians getting pulled down under this law, which raises some, some, some big questions. And, you know, there's sort of semi-related to that, you know, there's, there's efforts to kind of expand um, or, or put in place similar laws. There's a, there's a big discussion going on right now with this sort of uh, terrorist regulation in yeah. the EU, which, you know, is sort of a similar kind of law having to do with anything that is, is deemed to be, you know, terrorist speech. Yes. Um, and, yeah, no, and... that's exactly. So, I mean, they've done it in, so this terrorist speech regulation is pretty, um, is pretty far reaching there. There's a, a little bit sort of behind in terms of the development. There's, there's likely to be something in the future on hate speech. Mm -hmm. Um, the, they've seen, at least Europe so far has seemed to have, um, kind of resisted the temptation of, of taking a hard line on disinformation Mm -hmm. But that's happening at the state level where there's a lot of problematic law happening. So there's a lot of activity in Europe. And I think it's it's a big mistake if we don't pay attention to it over the next I mean, right now, but over the next couple of years, because because the companies are, you know, companies of such scale, what happens in Europe isn't going to stay in Europe. You know, they're going right. to that my my sense is, you know, if companies find that they need to be responsive to these European laws and they develop tools like upload filters and, and, and sort of other algorithmic, I mean, to bring it back to this report, yep. um, algorithmic approaches to, to dealing with content, you know, that, that stuff isn't going to stay in Europe. It's going to be uh, used, I'm sure, to um, moderate space that, that Americans think of as their space too. Yeah. I think that's a big deal and sort of a related, but, but, uh, slightly different issue is the fact that, you know, so much of the discussion around all this is focused on, you know, the Google, YouTube, Facebooks of the world. And yet these rules and laws, you know, impact lots of other platforms. And, totally. you know, there's there's a, a reasonable concern that that one of the impacts of of these uh, regulations is that you you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, while it may be expensive and painful, they can they can figure out ways to deal with it. Mm -hmm. The smaller companies, um, whether they're more targeted or, you know, the, the new startups and, and upstarts that, that sort of want to enter that space, it suddenly becomes prohibitively expensive or risky to, to even try. And so therefore you could lock in the dominance of these larger platforms, um, which, you know, might not be such a good idea. Yeah. Um, no, I think I'm sure that that's, it, it's just raised the bar for new entrants into any of these fields. I mean, I'm always, the, I mean, you know, better than I do, the history of this space of digital space is, you know, you, you see these um, huge, uh, companies, you think they're indomitable, and then, yeah. um, and then something new comes around. So I wouldn't want to say that that's that can't happen, but but the cost on entry is really high right now in Europe, yeah. um, and so there's this paradoxical effect where, you know, European lawmakers think that they're, um, you know, somehow making it uh, like making the space uh, uh, more protective of their citizens. But but it's at the same time making competition uh, much much more difficult for the smaller entrants. Yeah, so this is um, somewhat related to this. I mean, we're discussing Europe a lot because there's obviously a lot going on there. But there was just this this ruling in uh, the European Court of Human Rights, which which you know definitely impacts sort of the free speech questions been raising. Uh, quite a bit of discussion <laughs> um, and it's a, a case that sort of, you know, bubbled up to the, the court of human rights from Austria mm -hmm. and it involves this sort of question of whether or not um, I, I forget the exact terminology, but, you know, effectively disparaging mm -hmm. uh, a religion or religious ideas or religious feelings, I believe is the phrase that's used in the, in the ruling um, sort of uh, trumps the free speech, right? Um, yeah. 
And do you have any thoughts on on that particular ruling? Yeah, I mean, I've 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 only looked at it once, and um, I wrote a few things about it on Twitter before we before we started talking. I I mean, my concern is that the that that the case is just extremely broad, and yeah. you know gets a lot of human rights law wrong, um, and and it's focused on this question of you know is it is it possible for government to restrict individuals from disparaging religious institutions or religious figures. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like the lower courts in the case basically said, um, you know, this wounds religious feelings. And in order to to protect religious harmony um, and peace among people in Austria, uh, it's it's okay to, to penalize this woman. Uh, for for her remarks, I mean a footnote here. The remarks were deplorable. I mean, yes. what, what she was organizing was really um, racist and and anti-Islamic, and so yes. and like deeply Islamophobic. So the question isn't whether the underlying uh, remarks and content is problematic. It's whether it should be subject to criminal law. And I, my my fear is, I mean, two things. One is governments. Like they reach for the, they see a nail, they reach for a hammer, right? <laughs> that's that's a real problem um, in and of itself. But the other problem is that the breadth of the language of this decision really suggests that, um, you know, that in other contexts of dealing with uh, religious feelings, that there's room to restrict speech and the fear that I think a lot of people have when they see the, a, a ruling like this is, well, what happens when religious reformers yep. start talking about um, reform of, of their religion? What happens when, you know, satirists um, or, you know, political commentators uh, criticize a particular religious doctrine? Isn't that going to undermine the ability of people to exercise their right to free speech? So that's, I mean... There, there probably was a way that this decision could have been written more narrowly, and it wasn't. And it's, it's, it's problematic. And I hope it's not followed other in other places. Yeah, but yeah. you can see how that sort of broad decision and sort of the the vagueness that that comes with that then sort of flows back into questions related to, you know, how platforms would moderate this kind of speech. You know, suddenly if it's if it's not protected, if the speech itself is illegal, and you have laws or or even norms around, you know, we're not going to allow that kind of speech or the speech that the that the courts have deemed to be not protected. Um, then again, you get right back to this question where suddenly you have the platforms having to make decisions or, you know, algorithms and AI having to make decisions about whether or not this kind of speech should be allowed. Um, and especially, I mean, you bring up the example of, of satire. Um, you know, are you going to be able to train an AI system to determine that, you know, this particular speech mocking a religion is satirical versus this is you know, uh, you know, Islamophobic or, or whatever it might be, you know, it's, it is, these are not easy questions and they're not questions that AI is likely to be able to, to parse out the nuance of. Yeah. I, so this is, I mean, this, I'm, I'm glad we're able to connect this, you know, (laughs) blasphemy decision to AI because on its face, you might not think that it would. So that was, that was really excellent, Mike. Um, (laughs) so I, I mean, I really think that this kind of decision highlights the difficulties the companies are going to have because so a company sees a decision like this and and they they have to think through right whether as they're either for their content moderation policy or as part of their moderation policy because i mean the volume requires ai there's just no question about it it at least requires some form of automation so i mean it it's going to require the companies to think, okay, when people start to talk about religious figures, um, how do we, because, you know, the AI and the algorithms are not, um, I mean, they're designed by humans at the, at the first instance. So how do we as humans, how do we as policy makers and how do we as engineers uh, design an algorithm that 
takes into account all the complexities of this particular legal ruling and how do we do it in a way that has you know the 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 fewest um you know false positives how do we do it in a way that takes down you know in a manageable way only what we want to take down or or warns users only in those instances where it's on the on the edge i i i find it really hard to see how the companies can implement something like this and it just it heightens the the questions around um not just you know sort of our our sort of mantra that content moderation is hard mm-hmm. but that that content moderation really in a in an era of vast volume is putting significant kind of public responsibility on private companies yeah and that's i mean that's it's a big deal i think yeah so uh, you know in in an ideal world um and and there may not you know that this may not, this doesn't exist i should be clear <laughs> in an ideal world you know what what would you want to see the companies do to deal with these issues yeah so um so i would like to see the companies do a few things and um and again like you said it's not an ideal world and and it's also like any of these particular steps are not they're not you know fail safe there's right. there's always going to be significant margin of error so i think there's kind of substantive things that the companies can do and there's process things that the companies can be doing so on the substantive side you know i, I my my sense is um well first off companies need to have policies that in my view they should be rooted in human rights law mm-hmm. right so they should be you know based on you know the fact that they're global companies they should be based on global norms so i think that's that's to my mind a first step but that can, doesn't can I, get can, you can, can, let me jump yeah. in for a second yeah. though and and just raise one point which is that you say based on on human rights law some people might you know respond and point out like well we just had this decision at the Court of Human Rights um, that is, you know, uh, claiming to be interpreting human rights law. But, you know, as, as you said, you think they got it wrong. But if if a company is sort of trying to base it in, in human rights, what are they going to base it on if not like rulings from, say, the European Court of Human Rights that we both feel got this particular one wrong? So I'm sort of wondering how do how do companies base it in human rights law when when we're not clear what human rights law is saying and if that's an accurate portrayal of what we think of as human rights. Yeah, I that's so I think that's a real significant problem. I mean, I do think that that there's more law out there than this one case. Sure. Right? Sure, so and this was a sort of a smaller chamber case and there's other good law in the in the European court system. But but I think you're you're I mean, you're hitting a really good point which is you know, when when we or when I say the company should implement human rights law or at least use human rights law for the basis of their policies that doesn't that doesn't get you all the way to having good policies necessarily right. or at least good outcomes i my my i think one positive feature of having human rights law as the basis is there's um well there's two things one if the current policies are basically rooted in their own in interpretation of of both their users interests and their company's interests it's not really rooted in any general principles of uh, of kind of of what makes sense for mm-hmm. for people and what makes sense for um for for platforms that have become so publicly um facing so that and and it it also allows the companies to exercise a whole lot of discretion so so i think that focusing on human rights law at least allows some measure of constraint on their um on their decision making and on their sure. policy making so even though i i mean i agree human rights law itself has a lot of complications and also is it's not always where we as americans who really value the first amendment that's not always where we would want to be so right. i'm i'm basically saying that you know um for because the companies are global this is a better standard than either kind of a company uh discretionary standard or a standard that's based on on first amendment law 
So, but you're right. It's, it's, it doesn't make it very easy for the companies when you have decisions like this that look, um, that look wrong and that I think are going to be criticized by a lot of, you know, human rights lawyers and free expression lawyers. Right. You know, you know, but the, the other part of it is Mm -hmm. that there's process issues that are built into, um, sort of the business and human rights framework. And, and I think some of those processes, I think they help us where the substantive law might not. So those are processes that encourage transparency, so more disclosure. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean necessarily algorithmic transparency, because that, that might confuse people more than anything else. But I right. mean, um, more disclosure about the decisions that the companies are making, um, more, more disclosure about uh, the extent to which AI is responsible for outcomes as opposed mm-hmm. to human moderation. I think there's a lot of room to be doing that kind of work. I think there's a lot of room for transparency around um, policymaking. So how are the companies actually making these decisions? Um, what What is the broader kind of aggregate uh, outcome of their decision making? Is there, we don't have any kind of uh, kind of case law around yep. company content moderation or their use of, of AI. And I think we could use more of that. And and it's not that transparency and disclosure on their own uh, solve these problems. But it, I think one of the big problems right now is that the companies have most of the information and we on the outside have to kind of figure out through the tea leaves what's actually <laughs> happening. And I think that to the extent we can make that a more level playing field for discussion, then, you know, our criticism will be more on point and their responses will be subject to a little bit more, um, you know, verification and analysis that's rooted in what's actually happening. That I mean, that's, I think that kind of, um, openness would be a benefit even if the substantive rules are still under you know under some kind of you know dispute and and an argument yeah no I, I think that's that's good and we've talked about that in a few other contexts too but it is definitely the situation where you know as i said earlier these companies are effectively creating law within their platforms and yet the you know with any law you have interpretations and challenges and usually those are are worked out by a judicial system which you know in in the public sphere you know mostly happens in public and rulings are public and precedents are public yeah. uh, and and the the you know the 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 process by which it's adjudicated is is mostly public yeah. um, and yet you know with all these platforms almost all of that is completely hidden and and you don't know other than the results this person is no longer allowed to speak on this platform or this particular content has been taken down or things like that and we don't we don't see any of the the um you know the sort of judicial process and yeah. and like you understand sort of how that that happened i mean you know companies certainly worry about like well if we reveal all that that opens people to to gaming the system or or playing around with it and like you know if if something you know, makes sense in this context, but maybe doesn't make sense in another context. You know, the process of having to actually go and and you know present a case is is you know it's it's a lot of work, um, yeah. but you know it it leads to a lot of the confusion and anger and and problems that I think we're facing. So, um, exactly. I, I I tend to side with you in terms of much more transparency. And the the one thing I would add to that too is again sort of pulling from our judicial system is is some sort of element of due process mm-hmm. you know in, in terms of like being able to appeal a decision and yeah. and you know uh be able to 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 go deeper and there yeah. are again all sorts of questions related to that too i think I, I that's right and i think so the you know the the new focus on ai and its and its role mm-hmm. in moderating content or or um because I mean, we've talked a lot about content moderation, but it's also about personaliz- personalization and display of information that mm-hmm. um, AI makes the sort of the, the elements of individual autonomy and um, notice and consent and you know, the ability to appeal. It makes it all the harder, all the more difficult, in part because sometimes the companies themselves don't even know why there was a particular right. outcome 
which is always baffling to me. But, <laughs> you know, they they sometimes, I think, struggle to figure out. Remember, there was this case over the summer when um, this uh, Texas, like small newspaper in Texas was posting to Facebook each um like several paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence each day for like the 12 days leading up to the 4th of July. And then it got to this one point where a post was, uh, I think it was either, you know, it wasn't allowed to be posted. And right. it, it it involved a reference to, you know, quote, Indian savages, end quote. And, you know, <laughs> nobody really knew for a good day as to like, how did that how did that material come down? How is that hate speech? And right. it was clearly a, kind of an AI screw up, but it wasn't even really a screw up. It was, you know, there's some aspect to which that's actually what the the policy is designed to root out. You know, it's yep. just so we sometimes don't even know. So, so the problem with AI, I think, is that it makes it puts us as users even more distant from the decisions that are being made on these platforms. And, um, and that's why, like right now, as the companies are, you know, trying to bake in whatever content policies they've got into their AI, and as they train the AI systems, like, they really need to work hard to get this, this part of it correct, and to provide mechanisms now for people to, to appeal at, for the due process reason that you mentioned, but also to make sure that they're their AI ultimately is responsive to what their policies actually are and, and yeah. the spirit of the policies, not just the, you know, sort of the, the, um, you know, the four corners of it. Yeah. We just had, uh, this, this past week, we had a, a similar experience ourselves, um, that I wrote about where, um, back in August, I'd written a, a really big post about content moderation and sort of the impossibility of, of doing it well at scale yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And it got a lot of attention. It was a great and, post. Uh, thank you. And um, uh, so like a month after we put it up, we got a notification from Google because uh, we use AdSense basically as backfill if we don't have other, other advertisements telling us that that post had been deemed dangerous or derogatory uh, <laughs> and they had removed uh, you know, the ability to run AdSense ads on it. And it was, they had this sort of appeal process, which is completely opaque, and we appealed. And 24 hours later, we were told that the ads were reinstated, which was great. Yeah. And then last week, same thing, the same article. We got this wow. notification, dangerous and derogatory. And we appealed again. And 24 hours later, we get a notification saying, um, you know, our original review stands. This, this is dangerous and derogatory. No other information, no explanation. It's like, you know, I, I, I sort of thought it was a somewhat ironic demonstration of the difficulties of content moderation if you're going to yeah. declare our, our post on the impossibility of good content moderation dangerous and derogatory um That's you know crazy yes <laughs> it's crazy but you know you then you know you you kind of amplify that by the the yep. extraordinary volume of content and yeah. and the fact that like you have both an economic and an expressive incentive to appeal and yes. then you think about all the people around the world who have no clue as to how they might. I mean, maybe they see the button where they can appeal, but, you know, they're moving fast. They're moving right along and, and they don't appeal. So yeah. like in, in any individual case, big deal. But in the broader scope of things, you know, there's kind of this, you know, this cleaning of the platforms that is, you know, it's just it's really opaque. To, to a lot of yeah. people and and probably won't be something it's it's sort of why like as good and important as appeal is it doesn't really answer the overall question about about how we think about the platforms in terms of their shaping of the space for information yeah yeah no i think that that's definitely true um so we we've been focused a lot on sort of you know the companies and what they should do. So to close us out, I want to switch over to the to the government side because I know you discussed that in the report also a bit. Yeah. Um, you know what what would you like to see governments do or think about in in regards to these questions? Yeah, I, I mean, so I mean, at least focusing on well, first on content moderation generally, I think um, governments should stay away from viewpoint regulation, like mm -hmm. full stop. But that they they have a role 
um, and maybe a, a real positive role in regulating transparency and encouraging the companies to be transparent. I think that that the companies are are trying to avoid that, and so it, that that incentive structure is now encouraging them to be more transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but I think there's room for government to to be more involved on that on that front. But but really to you know, to stay away from the viewpoint-oriented kinds of, uh, of, um, of regulation. When it comes to AI, you know, the problem with AI right now is that so much of its use uh, implicates rights other than just expression. You know, yeah. it, it, it implicates privacy. It implicates discrimination, which is probably mm-hmm. the biggest problem right now, both in terms of content discrimination, but also in terms of, you know, racial, ethnic, religious discrimination. And, and I think, you know, this is just an area where, um, where government needs to pay attention, because yeah. of the implications for, you know, for basically pervasive, um, uh, you know, the kind of pervasive fundamental rights that we enjoy. And, and because there's this risk of the technology itself becoming so opaque and so distant from individual experience and and an individual and lawmaker ability to understand it that there needs to be a real focused and deep um, exploration of the impact of AI on not only the information space but you know kind of our our communication space generally. So I see a lot of room for that to happen. It's obviously an area where there needs to be a lot of caution. But and, and of course, when you think about you know U.S. regulation and and the U.S. political system right now, I don't trust it very much to do the right thing. But right. I, but I do think there are smart people, you know, in Congress who could. Um, I mean, there's not a lot of them, <laughs> but but there's there's a handful of people who are thinking about this carefully who I'd like to see them take the lead. You know, people like, you know, Senator Wyden and Senator Warner or Congressman uh, Ted Lieu, Mm -hmm. um, you know, people who actually have thought about, um, you know, whether we're talking about computer science or we're talking about algorithms and we're talking about, you know, expressive space. I think if we could get some leadership from them in the United States, I think we that's what I would like to see. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's. Yeah, it's it it is a tough position, you know, because I don't think there are easy answers. This is one of the things that I've been sort of noodling on myself a lot, you know, in the last year, especially the number of sort of challenges around this whole space that don't have easy answers and in which people tend to want to seek easy answers, um, most of which I think will make issues worse rather than better. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a whole other area. But, <laughs> but I agree with that, and that's I mean this is the threat I think on the content yeah. side out of Europe, which is you know there are some easy responses that would be really problematic, um, yeah. and and so that's why I hope that you know some smart people who've really thought about this, and there there are people you know smart people thinking about this in Europe, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, you know I just think there needs to be real care as we move forward. But that, but this is a space where I, I don't think we can leave it to the companies alone. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that makes sense. Um, well, uh, David, thank you very much for taking the time uh, and you know putting together this report and and a bunch of other reports and articles and and um, you know being sort of a key voice in in a lot of these discussions that I think are, are really important to be having. Um, and I'm sure that our listeners will appreciate this this discussion as well. Yeah. So thanks, thanks Mike. Thanks and so thanks much to for you us. for everything that you do and and everything that TechDirt is doing. It's invaluable. Really, really uh, appreciate your work. Well, thank you. That's always nice to hear. Uh, and uh, thanks also to everyone who's listening, because uh, otherwise we'd be you know talking into the void. <laughs> so, um, thanks to everyone. Thanks to you. And we'll be back next week with something else. <laughs> Stand up to them, someone will get.